Welcome to the Lancet podcast. Richard Lane with you here on Tuesday, October the 30th. This week, our focus is on breast cancer screening in the United Kingdom. We publish a review today online, Tuesday, October the 30th, which gives an update to a very important question as to the true value of mammography screening, both in terms of reducing mortality from breast cancer and also the important question which has been debated for over 10 years now as to whether screening can actually lead to the overtreatment of cancers in some women. Let's now hear some highlights from the press conference held in London to launch this paper. You're first going to hear from Professor Mike Richards, the National Cancer Director for England. And after Professor Richards, you'll hear the main analysis from one of the authors of the paper, Professor David Cameron, who is Clinical Director of the Edinburgh Cancer Research Centre and also Professor of Oncology at Edinburgh University. As you will probably all know, breast screening was established in this country in the late 1980s following a report by Sir Patrick Forrest uh, based on randomised controlled trials that had been done way back then. Um, and since then, major decisions on screening have been made by ministers on the advice of a national screening committee which covers all four uh, UK countries. Uh, the implementation of screening uh, in England in particular is, is monitored very closely by the NHS breast screening programme with extensive quality assurance uh, and by a committee, the Advisory Committee on Breast Cancer Screening, which uh, includes experts on radiology, pathology and surgery. That committee has previously concluded that around 1,400 lives are saved uh, per annum through breast screening. But I think you will all also know that in recent years there have been a significant number of studies that have suggested either that the benefits of screening have been overstated or that the harms have been understated. Uh, some of those have involved reviews of the randomised controlled trials. Some have looked at more recent studies of implementation and to say the least they have come to diverse results um, and so this has become a, an area of, of high controversy um, and despite the fact that scientists are looking at the same evidence base people are reaching very different uh, conclusions and uh, Harper and I discussed this um, back in September last year and felt that the only way really to take this forward was to set up an independent review um, and that we would bring together uh, distinguished epidemiologists, statisticians, clinicians and patients to give us advice on this. The key element here being that although they are eminent in their own fields, they have none of them previously published on breast cancer screening um, and giving them independence in that regard. Um, and uh, I again grateful for the immense hard work that they have done and you're now going to hear about it. David, over to you. So I'm going to try and summarise our findings and the context of those findings, obviously on behalf of uh, Professor Michael Marmot, who sadly can't be here, and, and the rest of the panel, and I have done my best to cover our, our collective views which are in the, the publication that comes out tomorrow. Forgive me if some of my introduction is stuff you already know, but I thought it was helpful to set the scene properly in a sense as to why might breast cancer screening work? What do you need to have a successful screening program? Well, the first thing is that screening for anything has to be able to diagnose a condition at a time when treatment is more effective. If there was no treatment for the condition, there's no point in screening for it because you can make no difference to the women if it's breast cancer we're looking at, other than telling them earlier that they've got something which we can't do anything about. And equally, if treatment was perfectly effective, 
if, and sadly this is not the case, but if every patient presenting with breast cancer, however diagnosed, could be cured, then you wouldn't need to screen for it because you'd simply wait for it to turn up and then cure. So you need a condition which you can diagnose earlier than would naturally happen through the normal health channels, and you need to have treatments that are effective but not yet perfect. Otherwise, screening isn't necessary. And for breast cancer, both of those conditions exist, so there is the potential for a screening program to be effective. What we're talking about largely here is screening through the use of mammography. There are, in specialized circumstances, women who may be surveyed through different techniques, but the national programmatic breast screening programs all use mammography. And mammography can detect breast cancers which are not apparent to either the patient or the doctor. So in other words, there is the potential to pick up a lesion in the breast, which is a cancer, earlier than it would normally become apparent. And secondly, treatment in breast cancer is effective. It can cure patients, but sadly not every patient. And so there is the potential for screening to be effective. The background, as Professor Sir Mike Richards just summarized, was that in 1986, Professor Sir Patrick Forrest published his report recommending a breast cancer screening program. And two years later, in 1988, the NHS breast cancer screening program started. Subsequently, and I think as a panel we discovered just how large this literature really is, an enormous literature has appeared around the whole topic of breast cancer. Further trial results were published after the start of the breast cancer screening program, but perhaps more importantly, there's a very large literature on what you might call observational studies. Various analyses looking at what happens in populations and trying to work out from that what the impact of a breast cancer screening program is. And as the literature has emerged, so has an enormous controversy. And I will try and briefly summarize some of the components of that controversy. Firstly, what actually is the magnitude of any potential mortality reduction from a breast cancer screening program? Just how big is the benefit, if there is one? Secondly, the randomized trials that were done were done sometime in the past. How relevant are those randomized trials for today's breast cancer screening programs and therefore today's women. Thirdly, this large literature on observational studies. Actually, how do you best interpret those data? What are the weaknesses and what are the strengths of all those analyses? And finally, but importantly, women are surviving breast cancer better now than they were in the past. And one of the components of that is the fact that our treatments have got more effective. So, how relevant are the data from the older studies, whether randomized trials or observational, in today's context of more effective treatments for breast cancer? So the debate around the benefits sits largely in those areas. On the harm side, critical to this, and this is something we will address, the question of overdiagnosis. Now, let me be very clear what this means. This is not a false positive or false negative. This is not a diagnosis made that is wrong. Overdiagnosis is diagnosing a cancer in a woman, but it's diagnosing a cancer that she didn't need to know about because it never would have troubled her in her lifetime otherwise. Not a false positive or a false negative. It is a malignant lesion as properly diagnosed, but it's one she didn't need to know about. That's what we mean by overdiagnosis, and we will address that and I'll discuss it. The second area where there's been a lot of controversy is the issue of what's known as DCIS, or ductal carcinoma in situ. 
Now, DCIS, before there were systematic breast cancer screening programs, existed and was diagnosed, but was a relatively uncommon reason. And what's become clear in all the implementations of breast cancer screening is that the frequency or the incidence of DCIS has risen. It's found more commonly when you have breast cancer screening than when you don't. Now, DCIS is a lesion which can be detected by mammography or can present without mammography, where you have cells that have changed from being normal cells into malignant cells. But they're still confined within the duct in the breast, and they have no ability to go elsewhere. So yes, it's a lesion in the breast, but it's not one that can kill the woman, because it hasn't got the ability to spread. However, DCIS lesions have the ability to turn into invasive cancers, which can spread and ultimately kill a patient. So they are things that can be found, things that are treated, but per se are not immediately fatal. There are a number of other harms, and importantly, the psychological consequences of taking part in a screening program. You get an invitation, you worry about what might be found when you go for the breast cancer screening process, maybe something is found, and at that point it's only a lesion on a mammogram. It's not yet clear whether that's a cancer or not. And all the stress of that is something that's in, which we recognised and has been well documented elsewhere. And finally, importantly, if we're to invite women to a breast cancer screening programme, what information are they given when they get that invitation? And we will touch on that in the end. And this, in a sense, sets the, the basic framework of the benefits and harms that have created some of the controversy in the literature. Our terms of reference are summarised here. We were to develop an up-to-date, as of this calendar year, assessment of both the benefits and harms associated with population breast cancer screening programmes. It's a rigorous review of the available evidence by an independent panel, as has been explained to you. It is not, however, a formal systematic review, which itself has a particular uh, methodological and statistical process. We didn't actually have the time to do that, given the extent of the literature. But it is a rigorous review of the evidence. Firstly, what did we look at in terms of, of assessing the benefits on mortality if they exist? We considered the effect on breast cancer mortality, not on breast cancer survival. And let me explain the difference for those who don't quite understand. When we, in, in the clinical arena, measure survival, we essentially measure how long somebody lives until they die from the date at which a condition was diagnosed. Now, we expect, and all the data support this, that if you screen for breast cancer, you will diagnose breast cancer earlier than it would normally have become apparent. Therefore, if the treatment was completely ineffective, which is not the case, those women who have a lesion or cancer found by screening will live longer with that diagnosis because we picked it up earlier. So if we use survival as the end point, screening will look positive, even if treatment was ineffective. So you can't use survival because that includes the, what's called the lead time, which is the time between when you find it by screening and when it would normally present it. Instead, we use mortality which is dying of the disease in a particular age bracket. And so all the data we talk about are mortality rather than survival to avoid that uh, possible distorting effect. The second important point is we cannot look at overall mortality. Now ideally you might say let's look at overall mortality, measure actually when do women die, according to whether they do or don't take part in the screening program. The problem is women die of lots of things, not just breast cancer. 
And in order to measure a mortality, overall mortality effect of the screening program, we would need much, much larger studies. They're not statistically powered to show an effect on overall mortality, because breast cancer is only one of the things that women die of in the age bracket where screening is done. And we make an estimate in, in the paper, which is actually if we cured all breast cancers, the average life expectancy of women would only be increased by about six months because of the other competing causes of death. So we focus on breast cancer mortality, and we first focus on the randomized trials, and then we looked at the observational studies afterwards. Now, literature agrees that there are essentially 11 randomized trials. Now, you can count this in different ways. The 11 are listed here. So you have the HIP study. The MALMO trial is split into two. There is the Swedish two-county study, which took place in two different counties. And so it's usually counted as two different studies, because the randomization ratios are slightly different. In Canada, they ran a breast cancer screening study, and they did very slightly different things under and over the age of 50, so they tend to be counted as two separate studies. Two further Swedish studies, a UK age study, uh, and the original Edinburgh study. All these trials compared women who were invited to take part in a breast cancer screening program using mammography compared to a control group of women who were not invited. But they varied in many other criteria. And we make a summary of some of those in, in, in the report, and if you go back to the original papers, you'll see it. They're not all identical, they have various differences. They're all randomized. And randomized trials are very important because essentially when you run a randomized trial, whether it's of people or patients or, or anything else, you are minimizing the difference between the two groups, except for the one key thing you're testing, which is the intervention. You're smoothing out all other differences. Because in the context of, of breast cancer screening, Individual women have different risks of getting breast cancer for a whole host of different reasons. And you want to smooth out those differences, so when you look at the outcomes, you're comparing the effect of your intervention, which in this case is breast cancer screening, and you smooth out all other differences. However, and the literature is generally in agreement with this, the Edinburgh trial is excluded from most analyses because of the way it did the randomization. And the Edinburgh trial randomized by the size of the GP practice. Now that might seem an easy way of randomizing, because they wanted all the women attending the same practice to either be screened or not screened. But what happened is that this led to significant imbalances between the screened group and the non-screened group in essentially their social class. And this is important because the incidence of breast cancer varies according to different social classes, and the mortality from breast cancer varies according to different social classes. <coughs> So unfortunately, the Edinburgh trial introduced, by its mechanism of randomization, other fundamental differences between the two groups, which meant the ability to measure the impact of breast screening was reduced. So we, like almost all other analyses, have left the Edinburgh trial out of our primary meta-analysis. The trials looked at different ages, and we looked at all the data across all the ages, even though we know that the UK program starts at the age of 50. There have been concerns expressed in the literature about the cause of deaths, particularly in some of the Swedish studies. Now, it may seem obvious, but actually, as a clinician, it isn't always exactly clear. And in fact, some of the trials went through quite a rigorous process to work out whether a patient who died actually died of breast cancer or something else. And because the endpoint of these trials was mortality from breast cancer, that was an important exercise. And 
Yes, we recognize that the accuracy is not perfect, but we were comfortable as a panel that the concerns raised about some of the studies were not sufficiently likely to distort the conclusions so that we should leave them out of our primary analysis. The other thing that's clear, again, from the literature, from individual studies, and there is general agreement about this, is that you don't expect to see an effect on mortality in the first few years, and by and large you don't. And the reason for that is, is quite simple. Breast cancer is a disease, once diagnosed, that doesn't necessarily kill you immediately. Indeed, your risk of recurring from breast cancer and ultimately dying stretches out over many, many years. The precise amount varies according to the kind of breast cancer. So in the first five years of a screening trial, you don't really expect to see much difference in mortality. And more importantly, if your screening, say, finishes age 70, like we do in the UK, you would expect to go on seeing further mortality benefits beyond the end of the time when the women are screened, because cancers diagnosed during the time of the screening will not necessarily kill you in that same 20-year period. So the approach we took was to look at effects on mortality starting five years after the age at which women are invited to screening and extending beyond that for some 10 or 15 years beyond that. And this is the meta-analysis conducted by the two statisticians. Three key points on the bottom. Firstly, they used a random effects model. What that essentially means is we did not assume that all the studies, the Edinburgh one is left out, were trying to measure exactly the same thing because they used slightly different screening techniques. They were screening different populations and over different ages. So we allow for the fact that each trial may be measuring something slightly different. Secondly, we wanted to have 13 years of follow-up beyond the end of the trial to measure the mortality benefits, if they exist, after women had finished screening. And so we take the same basic data set as is used and published in the Cochrane Review. And you can see that this individual meta-analysis summarizing all the trials comes down to a hazard ratio of 0.8. In other words, that the breast screening <coughs> randomized trials point to a mortality benefit of a 20% reduction in breast cancer mortality for a breast cancer screening program. Now, there are statistical confidence intervals around that, 0.73 to 0.89, so that's between 27 and 11%. Our best estimate is the 20% figure. And this, in fact, is not very different from most of the rest of the literature. This is probably the figure around which there is less controversy. Most analyses come out with a mortality benefit somewhere in this order of magnitude. But we have to be honest that there is some uncertainty about the precise figure. Firstly, the statistical uncertainty, which is uh, described by the confidence intervals. But beyond that, there is inevitably some additional uncertainty, because actually you can ask the question, do these older trials with their older techniques of mammography and their older techniques of treatment give an accurate reflection of the benefit today? So we did look at a wide range of other studies, what might be called observational. Most of them, interestingly, report a higher mortality benefit. They imply that breast cancer screening is more effective than our summary figure. But we recognize that there are design faults, not not mistakes made by the authors, but inevitable design faults in a non-randomized data set. Some found smaller benefits, and we felt the best and safest conclusion was a 20% reduction in breast cancer mortality. What does this mean? Now again, if you look at the literature, you will see estimates from between one breast cancer death prevented for every 100 women screened, right up to one breast cancer death prevented for 2,000 women invited to screen. That's a big discrepancy there, which women you know, could quite naturally be concerned about. 
Well, the critical thing is this. If our estimate is of a 20% mortality benefit, the actual number of lives saved, <coughs> in other words, premature breast cancer deaths prevented, depends on how common breast cancer deaths are in the population you look at. If I take an extreme view, and no one is recommending screening women between 20 and 30, breast cancer death at that age is extremely rare. So a 20% improvement is not going to be very many women prevented from dying from breast cancer. So it's important to, when you work out the absolute benefits, to consider the age group where the screening takes place and what is the current rate of breast cancer mortality in that age group. And under 50, which is an age group that was covered by some of the trials, the absolute gains are less because there are fewer women dying of breast cancer. The relative benefit may be the same, but the absolute benefit is less. So what does this mean in the UK? So we look at this hazard ratio 0.8 in the context of the UK breast cancer screening program. Starts age 50, runs till women are 70, and we measure the mortality benefits between the ages of 55 and 79. Now the data in the UK say that for a woman aged 50, today, she has a 1.7% chance of dying from breast cancer between the ages of 55 and 79. That's with UK treatments and the UK breast cancer screening program. So the contribution of the breast cancer screening program is a hazard ratio reduction of 0.8. You need to multiply back up to work out what would her chance be of dying of breast cancer if everything else was the same, but there was no breast cancer screening program. And that gives you a risk of 2.13% of dying of breast cancer in the same age period if there was no breast cancer screening program. The difference between those two figures, 0.43%, is therefore an estimate of the benefit of the breast cancer screening program itself. This translates to 43 breast cancer deaths prevented for every 10,000 women invited to screening, or one breast cancer death prevented for every 235 women invited to take part in screening. If you look at a different death rate of breast cancer or a different incidence of breast cancer, the figures make a difference. So this is the, our estimate of the impact in the UK. Now let's come to the other major area we looked at, which is that of overdiagnosis. Just to remind you the, the definition, and it's not a definition we made up, it's in the literature. This is detection of true cancers, that are cancers under the microscope, found by screening that would not have been found had that woman not gone for the screening test. And the question is, does this occur? And if so, how common is it? And essentially this happens if a woman dies before the end of what's known as the lead time for her cancer. Now in the literature, those who've looked at it, you will see various estimates for lead time. They tend to try and quote an average. But what's become increasingly understood by breast cancer clinicians and scientists is that not all breast cancers are the same. Breast cancers grow at different rates, so there will not be a single lead time for all breast cancers. And this applies to both invasive breast cancer and DCIS, because DCIS can be found by the screening program and can turn into an invasive cancer, which would uh, potentially cause patients problems. So this graphic here summarizes very schematically four different kinds of breast cancer growth rates in terms of the impact of the screening program. So tumor D is the most aggressive kind. Dotted vertical lines represent when screening could be done for this patient. So tumor D, first screening rounds, it's not found. It's still microscopic. It's not detectable. 
But before the next screening round happens, this cancer has grown so fast that it's actually developed metastases, and this patient presents with advanced breast cancer before the next screening round. This is a very, very aggressive cancer, which a normal screening interval will not be able to pick up at an appropriate time. Tumors C and B are slower growing breast cancers, which at the time of the earlier screening rounds were not detectable, even though they were there, and we know that happens. But by the time of the fourth in the case of tumor C and fifth in the case of tumor B, these are detectable by breast cancer screening, so are picked up at an earlier time when treatment may be more effective. And tumor A is a breast cancer that is growing so slowly that it's never detectable by screening. And probably that woman might have to live 100, 150 years before it becomes clinically apparent. And we know that there's a range of growth rates of breast cancers and therefore the impact of screening will vary slightly according to these different types. And in this schematic, we allow for, although we did not find convincing evidence that this happens, the possibility that a cancer could appear in a breast and then disappear again, what's known as spontaneous regression. We did not find evidence that that certainly happens. Some people argue that it does. But this thinking allows for that possibility. Now the other important thing to think about is what happens if you run a screening program for a number of years and then stop. So this graph shows what's known as a compensatory drop. So you have two groups of women. The red are those who are screened and the blue dotted line are those who are not. Up until the age of 50, the appearance of breast cancers is the same in the two groups of women, approximately, because nobody has any screening. Age 50, they start screening. And in each screening round, you see a little step up, because screening identifies some cancers earlier. That's what's required for screening to be effective. And so the number of breast cancers diagnosed in the women who go through screening will be higher than in those who don't attend the screening. But by the time you get to the age of 70 and breast cancer screening stops, one would expect some catch-up in the women who were not screened as cancers that could have been found by screening had they been screened, but they weren't screened, and so they weren't found, then appear. So in this graph you get what's known as a compensatory drop, and beyond the age of 70, the ultimate incidence of breast cancer in these two groups of women is the same. There is a compensatory drop, drop at the end of screening, and so in this schematic there's no overdiagnosis. Now the other possibility is this. The first part of the curve is identical, same rates of cancer pre-screening, more cancers found in the women being screened in the red line. But when you get to age 70, the curves remain separate. There is no compensatory drop. And so for the rest of the lives, the women in the screen group, those on the red curve, have more cancers found. So there's no compensatory drop. There is overdiagnosis. That's the principle of the question we're trying to ask. So you can see to do that, not only do you have to have data on the cancers diagnosed during screening, but you also need to know what happens at the end of screening. What happens after the screening is finished in terms of the numbers of cancers diagnosed in the two groups of women. So again, first step, we went back to the randomized trials. We needed to have follow-up data not just during the screening, but once the screening has finished. To allow for the compensatory drop or lead time. And we wanted a minimum of five or ten years follow-up to allow for slower growing cancers to appear or not appear depending whether or not we thought overdiagnosis happened. But also what's important is we needed a trial where there was no screening of the control arm. So if I go back up here, if, if this, were, this had been a randomized trial, if at the end of 70 years, all the women in the control arm had also been screened, 
that all the women in the analysis would have been screened. Some would have been screened several times, and some only once. And so we needed to look at the trials where there was no exit screen in the control arm. Otherwise, you can't answer the question. And the other really important thing to understand is if you look at the literature, you see wide ranges of the estimate of the rate or percentage of overdiagnosis. Let's debate about the numbers of overdiagnosed cases, much more debate about the overall rate. Because the question is, what is the denominator? Number of overdiagnosed cases as part of what? What is the denominator? And in the literature, we, we could find at least 10 different ways of us estimating this rate. We chose to narrow down to four, uh, and report on a couple of them. So, when we look at the randomized trials, only three trials, as far as we could see, could give clear evidence that there was no systematic screening of the women in the control arm at the end of the trial. So those are the trials that would give us the best estimate of the overdiagnosis rate. And they are the Malmo trial and the Canada 1 plus 2. There's a fourth trial, the first trial ever done, the HIP trial in New York, which we excluded because it was difficult to obtain consistent figures, and in particular, and I apologize for another acronym, in particular, in at least one of the data reports from the HIP trial, it included a condition known as LCIS, or lobular carcinoma of Sanchi. Now, this is a condition that we do not treat. And it's a condition that is not usually found by mammography. What it is, is again, like DCIS, it's a change in the nature of some cells that don't have the ability to spread. But LCIS lesions don't tend themselves to go on to cause invasive cancer. They mark they, they act as a marker that those breasts in that patient have undergone more changes and so are more at risk of getting breast cancer. So LCIS is not usually included in any definition of DCIS because it isn't a lesion we would treat. It's just a marker of additional risk. And it wasn't entirely clear from the literature when LCIS figures were and weren't included in the HIP trial. So from the perspective of a woman, age 50, about to undergo 20 years of breast cancer screening, what is the likelihood that during those 20 years she has a cancer diagnosis that is in fact an overdiagnosis? It's a cancer found because she took part in the screening program that she didn't need to know about because it never would have become apparent otherwise. The three trials have their individual estimates shown here on the forest plot and we came down to a figure of 19%. We then went to look at all the observational literature to try and see whether that would allow us to get a better estimate or, or give additional insights. And this is, in a sense, almost more problematic than looking for the mortality benefits. And the reason is, if you look at, at a set of patients who have been screened, and you're trying to work out how many breast cancers would have appeared in that population had there not been screened, is you need to make assumptions about what the incidence of breast cancer would be in that patient group over the period of time that they were being screened. And there are many factors that alter a woman's risk of getting breast cancer. And so you need to make assumptions about what the pattern of breast cancer diagnosis would be in the absence of screening if you don't have a randomized trial. The other approach taken is you could compare women in an area that were screened with women in another geographical area, either another part of the same country, like one study from Denmark, or between countries, and again try and answer the same question. But it has the same problem. You need to make assumptions about what the emerging pattern of breast cancer incidence would be in a population who maybe have different risk factors for getting breast cancer in the first place. <coughs> Indeed, 
somebody within CIUK on our behalf, ran a simulation which said, if you change the assumptions, do you change the conclusions about overdiagnosis? And the answer is yes. And we were not convinced that one set of assumptions was more or less valid than another. So we found, although this approach, people were doing it in good faith, to the best of their ability, actually we felt that these approaches didn't deliver reliable estimates for the rate of overdiagnosis because of the need to make assumptions which couldn't be proven either way. So what does this mean? It means the panel concludes that overdiagnosis does occur. It's difficult to estimate its magnitude, but we found the best data source to do that estimation came from these three randomized controlled trials, and the rate was about 19% from the perspective of a woman taking part in the UK breast cancer screening program. So this means a woman age 50 today, who are potentially about to take part in the 20-year breast cancer screening program, one in 77 of those women, according to our estimate, will have a breast cancer overdiagnosed. This equates to approximately a 1% risk for all women entering the UK breast cancer screening program. So let me summarize. Our review of the evidence felt that the randomized control trials were still relevant and were the best source of evidence for both the two questions we set out to address. We concluded, and you've got this figure in your press release, that mortality from breast cancer is reduced because of the UK breast cancer screening, saving approximately 1,300 lives per year. This is a 20% reduction and equates to one death avoided from breast cancer for every 235 women aged 50 who accept the invitation to be screened for 20 years. But the panel also concluded that overdiagnosis occurs. And our best estimate of this is around the rate of 4,000 cases a year. Again, it's in your press release. This is about 19% of all cancers diagnosed in women in the breast cancer screening age. And it means a 50-year-old woman contemplating taking part in a 20-year breast cancer screening program in the UK today faces around about a 1% risk of a true breast cancer being found, but in a sense it didn't need to be found, because it would never have troubled her in her normal life. The panel therefore concluded that breast cancer screening should continue, as it is currently conducted in the UK. But we felt that the information given to women needs to be reviewed with our findings taken into account, so women are given an accurate picture of the benefits and harms. We also recommended, in an era where healthcare budgets are even more squeezed than they were in the past, that the cost effectiveness should be reviewed. Now we didn't do that analysis, and we're not saying that we think it's not cost effective. We're simply saying, if we've concluded that both the mortality benefit exists and overdiagnosis occurs, it's only appropriate that this intervention is reassessed for cost effectiveness so that people can be confident as to whether or not it's cost effective. That's all for this week. Many thanks for listening. See you next time.